You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you guys for joining us so much. Our guest this week is a former helicopter pilot who fought in Operation Iraqi Freedom. She served a total of eight years in the United States Army. She currently runs her own PR company, and she is the subject of a chapter in the book Band of Sisters, American Women at War. Her name is Robin Brown, and she joins us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Robin, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, so everybody's journey in the military begins somewhere. How did you get your start? So the um, I come from an Army family. Uh, most of my uncles, both of my grandfathers, my dad, all served in the Army um, for mostly careers. And so that was my norm. I grew up on Army posts, moving every two years, and then went to college on an ROTC scholarship. And um, so it was my... The civilian world was scary to me. The army was my normal. So it made sense. I went to, um, when everybody was getting ready, ready to graduate and, and going to job fairs, I was perfectly set up going into the military. You know, it's and very funny. happy to do so. <laughs> I can't believe you actually share that story because I, I've told this same story on the podcast. I, all right, just for everybody, from, from a daytime time frame, you, you did all this prior to 9-11. Obviously, you graduated from, yeah. uh, yep. from Fordham in 97. I graduated in 99, now that we date ourselves. But I remember distinctly, <laughs> I've told this story several times, that during the job fairs that were going on when I was in college, I, I, people were like, you going to the job fair? And I'm like, no. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, because <laughs> I have to go in the Army. I was doing ROTC, and I have to go in the Army. And then they looked at me with a, with a stone-cold face and said, why don't you just get a real job? Yeah. <laughs> I did have a roommate that was that always felt sorry for me that I had to go into the Army after I graduated. <laughs> yeah, but the so, funny part like is... like a punishment. Is, right. Our, our job got very real <laughs> shortly thereafter. Yes. So um, yeah. you, you enter into the Army. Now, did you always know you wanted to be a pilot, or is that something that you stumbled upon along the way? No, it just... Um, to be, I didn't know what I wanted to do in the Army, but when I was... You know, senior year, you're looking at the jobs that you could have. And I was trying to figure out what I could get out of the military that I wouldn't have gotten on my own. And so flying seemed to be one of those things. And I did not think I actually would get accepted. And uh, so, but I applied for it and I got it, which was a super exciting day for me. So, but no, it wasn't a lifelong dream. I kind of fell into it. Uh, We're going to touch on this a little bit later, but let me ask you, when you first got into the pilot world, particularly being an attack pilot, it's not a field that a lot of females were in at the time or if they were they weren't they were i don't want to say restricted but it's not exactly a lot of combat flight missions going on for female pilots at that point in time so how was that initially for you how were accepted were you into those ranks um i don't have any horror stories i loved i loved flight school and i loved flying and i loved the mission i flew the kiowa warrior so um which is considered light attack um, I'm sure you probably had an Apache pilot or two on that would argue that we were not attacked. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I, I really loved the the reconnaissance mission, and that just um, it it appealed to me, and that's what I wanted to do. I liked the fact that the aircraft was really small and quiet, and uh, so so that's what I wanted to do, um, and that's what I the aircraft that I got out of flight school. Um, but I loved flight school. I loved flying. Um, it was kind of you know I think they opened combat aviation to women in '95. And I went to school to flight school in '98, and I might be a little wrong. It might be that might have been '93, but anyway, 
I think that the military thought they'd have an influx of women in the combat um, aviation roles, and they didn't get that. And so, um, so by the time I came along in flight school and asked for the Kiowa, there still weren't a lot of women. I think I had three women in my class, my flight school class. Um, I think even aviation didn't seem to be, that, that wasn't a big deal was being, I did not feel like it was a big deal being a woman in aviation, but my first duty station was a second ACR. And that was probably a much bigger deal. It was going to the cab as a woman more than being a pilot, I would say. And ACR is just armored cavalry regiment. And with the cab, there was a lot of, uh, you know, air support for everything that those guys do on the ground. Um, what was so difficult about that? Uh, was it just the environment with, with the males and the mentality? Yeah, and I wouldn't say it was difficult. It just was, um, it hadn't happened yet. So when I arrived at the second ACR, I remember a few people telling me as I was going through in-processing that I wouldn't be assigned to a unit, which was ridiculous because, of course, I would be assigned. I was a brand-new lieutenant out of flight school and um, getting in line for my platoon like everybody else. And I was told by multiple people that um, there were, women weren't allowed in the CAV. Well, women obviously were allowed in the CAV, and and um, I got in line and got a platoon just like everybody else. And so it wasn't there wasn't anything blatant or, or or difficult. I did my job like everybody else did, and I feel like I was accepted. I don't like I said earlier. I really don't have any um, horror stories along the way. Um, I'm sure there are people that didn't want me there or didn't especially didn't want to work for a female platoon leader or later on as a female company commander, but they kept those opinions to themselves. And so I had a great experience at the second ACR and then later on at the 82nd Airborne Division. Well, and that's, I mean, listen, I don't want to sit here and say that's great to hear because that's what the standard is for us. And you yeah. know, for the civilians yep. listening, that's not something that I want to sit here and applaud because, well, that's the exactly. expectation yep. that we should all behave that way. Be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. sit here and pat anybody on the back for doing what we're supposed to do as far as being leaders and setting the example for others to follow. So from that standpoint, I won't say I'm glad that it went that way. I, I would yeah. have expected it to have gone it that way. It should have gone that way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. So um, when you get to second ACR, what year, what time frame are we talking here? So, um, oh, geez. So I went to flight school in 98. So I probably went to my unit in 99. Um, trying to think of it's a, So my time in the military is split right in the middle with 9-11. And so um, first four years, uh, I, I served four years before 9-11, four years after 9-11, which, of course, anyone, I mean, the whole world changed. So they were very, very different. But I arrived probably in 99 uh, to Fort Polk, Louisiana, after begging to go anywhere but Fort Polk, Louisiana. But yeah, I actually oh. enjoyed I enjoyed the second ACR very much. Okay, so where are so, you when 9-11 happened? Tell me about that day. So I was out processing, my husband and I. So I got married while I was at Fort Polk to another Kiowa pilot. And we were out processing uh, from Fort Polk on our way to the captain's career course um, and then going to the 82nd Airborne Division. And so our we actually had like our um, our housing appointment to get all, to, to arrange for all of our, our packers to come that morning on nine, the morning of 9-11. We're sitting in the housing office waiting to meet with to, to have oh, that appointment wow. and then. And then, of course, everything changed after that. Was there any TVs around you at the time? Like, nowadays, you walk in any office, there's a TV somewhere. But back then, there, were, there weren't no, – how did yeah. you hear about the whole thing? Yeah, no, we were sitting in the lobby waiting to go into our 9 o'clock appointment. And then the, the first – we were still sitting there when the first plane hit. And I remember on the news – I remember watching the news, and they said they, – they, they said um, – they, I think that originally they said it was, like, bad weather or something, or that it was a 
some somehow weather related and my husband and I are looking at this watching it clear blue sky and saying that's weird uh, this <laughs> must have been a really certain... bad pilot <laughs> yeah there's something about like it was an accident and we kept looking right. at each other and saying there's no way that was an accident and then shortly after that the second and our everyone i don't even think we had our appointment everyone just sat there for the next hour and watching the news until we all just finally decided we better get home um and immediately they put fort polk on lockdown like they did everywhere else and right no one knew what to expect so did that delay you leaving there and getting to the captain's career course or anything like that or no? No, we stayed on our same schedule. Um, but it was weird because, well, so that was, um, yeah, nine, so September 11th. And then we were, I mean, almost immediately started captain's career course, which I think is nine months. I'm trying to remember. It's a long time ago. And, um, then we went to the 82nd. And so by the time we showed up at the 82nd, which was early 2002, mid 2002 um uh we were all still waiting to see what was going to happen at that point while you were at the captain's career course and that's just a once you become a captain it's a, a class that you need to get to the next level um just yep. like kind of mandatory training for those civilians listening out there but uh, was there a lot of talk amongst your peers about oh god we're going to war and you know what do we get into and i want to get out or anything like that or well, no, because, um, I mean, people were excited. I mean, you get up every day and train to do a job, but you don't ever actually get to do it for real. And so I think when the, the opportunity came to actually do the job for real, people were pretty fired up about that. I was. I was really excited. But the whole time we're going through the captain's career course and we're training to be company commanders, we all knew, my class knew that we would most likely be deploying somewhere or be involved somehow in a combat environment. Well, as a result of 9-11. And Afghanistan obviously kicks off while you're there. Yep. Um, yeah. So you know that, you know, something is starting. So you get to the 82nd in the middle of, uh, of 2002, and the 82nd is one of the most mobile uh, divisions within the entire army. I mean, they're they're going somewhere immediately. Had they had already left yes. it by that point in time or no? No, no, we didn't. So I deployed with the 82nd um, in February of 2003, okay. and we went to Kuwait. And in Kuwait, we planned the invasion of Iraq. Mm. So we hung out there for, I feel, I think I, 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 uh, actually I remember I flew out on Valentine's day of February, Valentine's day of 2003, landed in Kuwait and we hung out there for, it was, know, it was, was a, month. a month. Yeah. Because month. the invasion was March 20th, 2003. Yeah. Uh, and, and for folks listening who aren't military, Kuwait is like a barren, it's not like it is a barren desert, but as far <laughs> as your level of boredom out there. It may yeah. be the most boring place on earth for anybody in the military, whether it's Army, Air Force, Navy. If you're ever stopping there, you want to get out of Kuwait as quick as possible. <laughs> so that month must have felt like a year. Well, I it was actually an amazing opportunity for me because I was the assistant S3, so the assistant operations officer. So I was in the mix. I was planning the um, – I was with uh, the uh, 1st Battalion, 82nd Airborne Division, which is an attack helicopter um, battalion. And we were planning, helping the division plan the – aviation portion of um the invasion which i don't i don't know how many people realize originally the plan was third id was going to roll into iraq and head north to baghdad and people thought it would take them a while and so we the 82nd airborne was going to jump into baghdad which at that time was called saddam international airport and do an airborne op, op take over the airfield and then um bring in planes to help meet the third id as they were heading north hmm. So that was the that was the plan, and that's what we planned. And we got all the way to we packed up all the airplanes, and I was going to be in with the the uh, the tack. I was very excited about getting a combat jump. We loaded everything up. We're ready to go take um, 
Baghdad airport. And then the third ID obviously met like zero resistance <laughs> and, and I, straight up. And then I chuckled. The most, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Well, the most demoralizing thing ever is when the 82nd Airborne Division is told, unpack the unpack the planes, throw everything in a truck. And we drove behind the third ID up into Iraq. <laughs> yeah, Very, I mean, I, I, and we're both a total ch- letdown. Right. For, for those non-military, we're both chuckling just because of exactly what you said. Like, we thought we were going to meet this huge resistance. And it was, they were literally in Baghdad in like half a day. Like, it was just, yeah. it, it was it like was so driving fast. to work. It was literally yep. so ridiculous. And... I, I, I can imagine the deflation in the room when you guys got that call. Because as you yeah, said, I mean, it's like... we planned it for a month. Yeah. We were all ready to go. We were, everything was packed. We just had to step on the airplanes. <laughs> we were uh. waiting for... And I remember there was something, and it's a long time. I haven't thought about this stuff in a long time. But um, the Iraqis had actually bombed their own airfields to keep us from landing planes. Right. And so there was a, you know, we were constantly like had intel coming on what the status of the airfield was and we were going to jump in and then we had to clear the airfield for the planes to come in after us. But it all like in an instant just went away. <laughs> yeah, I don't think a lot so, of people know that. Like that, it was really set up for a complex invasion and it yes. never had to be that. I mean, it was it was fairly simple. I mean, sure, some guys got injured and killed on the initial invasion, but yes. for the most part, you're talking very minimal resistance. So yeah. how do you, once you drive up to Baghdad and you're there, what's going on next? So we didn't drive to Baghdad. What we did was um, we slowly worked, um, and I can't think of the main highway that heads from Kuwait to Baghdad. Route Tampa. There you go. And uh, <laughs> so what we did was we cleaned up the mess behind the third ID. So little skirmishes here and there. We had our um, – I managed a, a FARP, so I drove along with fuel trucks and ammo trucks while the aircraft scouted ahead. There were – I mean, they had a few, like, small skirmishes and battles, but cleared pretty much cleared the, the route behind the third ID because they, they blew through so fast. And then we set up um, just – outside of Baghdad, well, actually right outside of Fallujah at a little airfield called El Takadam Airfield. And that's where we set up and we were, we kind of um, prepared to be there for a really long time. And I, it's funny what you say about, we had this very complex operation for the, for the war. And then it ended so quickly. I think everybody, no one knew what to do with themselves. And so almost immediately the entire 82nd Airborne Division was called back to the, to the States Meaning oh, wow. we went in February and we redeployed in May back to the States. And and at that point, the 82nd Airborne Division, and I can't – how many soldiers that is at this time. But um, we had that entire area. We had Fallujah um, to Ramadi. So pretty much everything from Baghdad to Ramadi, the 82nd Airborne Division was covering. That was our AO. And then in an instant, we pulled everybody out and left and went home. Well, and Baghdad Ramadi distance-wise, probably about an hour's worth of driving with no yeah, traffic. Yeah, it's not. Maybe, yep. It's not terribly it's not far, super, but but it created a vacuum. Sure. So meanwhile, while everybody else is operating in the whole country, there was a hole. It, this is my theory. I'm no expert, but it created a hole. And what happened is we went home in May. Um, nobody backfilled that area, and so the insurgency began to grow in Fallujah, um, and so. And there was no one there to, to catch it. And it's kind of funny. Then over the summer, I got a command. Um, and so I remember at some point in like August, one of my soldiers, and this is another one of those funny army things. Like one of my <laughs> specialists came up and was like, hey, ma'am, I heard we're redeploying. And I said, I scoffed. I said, we just got home. We're still cleaning up our equipment. There's no way they're sending us back. And literally like 48 hours later, we got orders to go back 
to um, Iraq. And we went back to the exact same spot we left. So the wow. 82nd Airborne, or the 82nd, yeah, we went right back and filled that entire area. And when we went back, it was a totally different world than the one that we left yeah. in May. Yeah. And two things real quick. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that we blew through there so quickly that no one knew what to do. And the solution was was to stay for another decade. I mean, that's a whole different discussion yeah. for a different day. Yeah. But beyond <laughs> yeah. that, you talk about Fallujah and the void that was there. Fallujah, for those who are civilians, and even for those who have been to Iraq, know that was some of the most dense and concentrated area of terrorists and bad dudes for the entire time that we were there. Fallujah yeah. was was hell on earth for a lot of people, uh, and it might have yeah. been one of the scariest places in Iraq to ever have to go. Maybe outside of Sadr City and a couple other places that had pockets of yeah. yeah had pockets yeah. of bad guys. But I mean, you know, Fallujah is just where a lot of bad things happened um, along yes. the way. So when you get back there and it's a totally different world, kind of describe that world of what you're seeing. And what was the time frame? You said it was what early 2003 when you got back, or late 2003 when you got back there. So we went back in September. Okay, um, 2003. And it, well, I mean, we were just thrown right into the, the mix. So there was an insurgency in, um, I mean, that's when they were rising. And so we, what we do in our aircraft is we provide cover for ground forces. So we work directly with the guys on the ground. And we, I mean, we fly really low to the ground. We fly with doors off. You can actually like hang out the helicopter and talk to the person through on the radio, but you can look at who you're working with on the ground. We're that close. And so we would provide cover while, um, our infantry forces would go, I mean, they've did all kinds of cordon and search. So they go block by block looking for targets um, based on different intelligence that they would get. And we would just be eyes in the sky providing cover while they did that. Um, keeping an eye on the rooftops. Uh, that was just, I mean, at that point, IEDs hadn't really started yet, but during that deployment, um, we began to see the beginning of the whole IED technology and, um, so again, we would do a lot of uh, convoy security, and then we'd also just um, fly up and down the roads looking for any disturbance that looked like someone might have dug a hole and put something in it. Um, in the beginning, they had to have wires connected to the IEDs to blow them up, and then very quickly they figured out how to detonate them with cell phones and things like that. So um, that's what we spent the entire uh, – was there eight months, I think, the second deployment, and we spent the entire time uh, working in and around Fallujah. And so with that, um, obviously, you know, you, you in the mission that you have to do, um, chances of bad things happening are pretty high, given the nature of what's going on. Well, we we didn't think that it was that high. I actually always felt really safe in the air. Um, so intelligence had told us that the most advanced uh, surface to air that they had was a was an SA-7, which is a really um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not advanced. It's like the first generation of surface to air type missiles. Um, so we have a countermeasure. It's called an ALQ-144 on the aircraft that sends a heat signature behind the aircraft. Anyone shooting a missile at an aircraft, it, the missile locks onto the heat signature and will hit your aircraft. And so we had ours set to SA-7s. Um, and aircraft started to get shot down in our area repeatedly. We lost five in like two months, I think. Um, there was The first one was that, I'm sure everyone remembers, the Chinook that went down in November. Mm -hmm. had like 18 soldiers that were heading out for R&R. Yep. Um, so that was right near us. And then on December 9th, my co-pilot and I were shot down right outside of Fallujah returning from a mission. Um, and then there were three more after that. And finally, they actually sent this metallurgist out from the States who literally dug through all the wreckage and figured out that they had SA-16s, which we did not know they had. 
which are much more advanced. <laughs> well, and go, so that's what they were shooting everything out with. Go back to your, your crash. Tell me about that day and that mission. So we were doing a convoy security for, um, they were changing out the money. So all the money prior to uh, December of 2003 had Saddam's face on it. And so they gave them new Iraqi money, new bills. And so there was this convoy that would go out and trade out the money with all the banks. So we were doing convoy security. We met the the trucks in Baghdad, drove them out to the different banks throughout Fallujah, and then followed them back to um, to Baghdad airport. And at that point, this is, again, one of those, like, when you look back, you realize how dumb it is. We had checkpoints. Every time we'd leave our airfield, we'd hit a checkpoint and then frequency change to the to, away from the airfield into the new airspace. And then on the way back in, we'd hit that same exact, which is a physical checkpoint we fly over and report that we're coming in. And again, we did that because we just didn't think they had anything that could shoot us out of the sky. And so what happened was they were starting, the, the insurgents were getting smart and they would see us leave and they'd know we'd come back. So on the way back, we had finished up the convoy security mission. We were on our way back. We're just south of Fallujah and we crossed the Euphrates River to get into our airfield. And so, like I said, we fly really low and we you're always flying, you're yanking and banking and, and flying pretty quick and trying not to be predictable in your movement. But we'd have to bump up pretty high, about 400 feet to get over the wires that ran along Euphrates River. And so I was flying, we were flying trail in a team of two. And so we had just bumped up over the wires and immediately there was an enormous explosion. I knew immediately that what it was. And so, um, did you see it coming or no, you just, no, we had no warning that it was coming. We just, suddenly there was an enormous explosion and everything, all the bells and whistles went off. It was really loud. Everything was shaking like crazy. Um, and it's in the, in the, in army aviation, you actually practice getting shot down constantly. It's like a very normal thing to do. You go up to a thousand feet at an air, at an airfield, you cut the engine off and you do an auto rotation and land the aircraft. Wow. And on the way down, you have like this checklist and you do all these things. And I don't think anyone, at least I never actually <laughs> thought it was ever, would ever really happen. But it's funny because it's amazing how well-trained our military is because as soon as it happened, my co-pilot and I immediately went through the checklist. We did it. I mean, it was as if it was a training, although at this point we were probably three or 400 feet off the ground instead of a thousand. Well, but I mean, but, was there, there, you're telling me there wasn't a moment of nervousness. There wasn't a, a an, Oh, you know what, uh, what's going on? Like, how do you catch your bearings in that moment to be able to do all that? Um, you know, I, I think about this a lot cause I don't know why we were, we were both extremely calm. Uh, I remember I, I looked at him, I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm going to turn into the wind. He knew where the wind was. Like Jeff was Jeff Sumner is my uh, co-pilot. He was on the controls, and I was talking on the radios. So I made a mayday call. Um, our, our our sister ship, we always fly in teams of two. They were ahead of us, and when the uh, explosion happened, they actually felt the concussion prior to me getting the mayday call out. And this is what's amazing to me. So we my we did all the checklists. You lock your shoulder harness. You make a mayday call. You turn into the wind. Jeff and I discussed where we would land. There was a freshly plowed field. And he said, I'm going to put it in the field. I said, okay. And uh, I remember it going down and I remember thinking, this is probably going to be the end. I don't know if we're going to survive this. And then I remember the whole sequence of we landed with the skids, um, the rear skids first, we rocked forward. I remember thinking, well, that wasn't so bad, but then I knew the blades were going to hit the, the ground in front of us. And so as we rock forward, that's one of those like flight school urban legends things. I don't know if it's true that like most people survive the crash, but then they get killed by the, the rotor blades when they come into uh, the cockpit. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I remember thinking, okay, here come the blades. And they hit the dirt and it was the, the dirt was really fresh. And suddenly the entire aircraft was full of dirt. You couldn't see anything, couldn't hear anything. 
And then we rocked back and we were both, and we were sitting there and I waited, I don't know, a few seconds, the dust cl cleared. And I looked over and Jeff was looking at me and I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, are you okay? And I said, I think so. And what's amazing is to me, it, it lasted a really long time. The entire process from getting hit to being on the ground seems like it was minutes, but our, our lead aircraft, when they felt the concussion, they banked hard left and came around. And by the time they came around, we were already on the ground, which just blows my mind that that's how fast the whole thing went. So you actually so, thought you weren't going to survive the crash at the, mo at the moment it happened? I, I thought that was a good possibility that we wouldn't be walking away from that one. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine what, what's, what the rest of your thoughts are at that point. Well, you don't really start thinking about any of that until you get home at the end of the night, until we were rescued. But at the time, it's just you're on automatic pilot. And so once we realized we were okay, we had to get out of the aircraft that was on fire. Okay. And so um, we got out, and you meet at the tail. We met at the tail. And then we looked around and realized that whoever shot us down was probably nearby, so we needed to get away. And so we got into say, a, there was, <laughs> You landed yeah. in enemy territory. You're behind enemy yeah. lines right now. <laughs> and so um, we, there's a, a, we were in this farm field, and there was a drainage, like an irrigation ditch all the way down one side. And so we got in the ditch, and then we just did your standard. I covered him, and he bounded down, and he covered me, and I bounded farther. So we kept moving away from the aircraft until we got – there was like a – kind of a great big bush we and we were felt we were pretty good distance at this point we got under the bush and that's when we have emergency radios and every day you have emergency frequency so if anything goes wrong you you can call on the radio so we started making um, calls on the radio we got our sister ship who was still in the air um, and then we have happened to pick up an a an a10 that happened to be passing through which is pretty nice so he stayed in the area and provided cover for us and then they began, so then our sisters began the, they, they called back and began the process for a rescue. Um, and so while we were waiting, we realized we still were pretty close and people were coming. So we were just on the outskirts of Fallujah, but, and so at that point, people were flooding out of the city because the aircraft had, had like huge billowing smoke coming out of it. And so people were flooding out of the city towards the aircraft. So we kept moving. So we just kept on moving away from the aircraft, um, and then we'd get to a spot and kind of wait, and then we'd see more people, and we'd get worried, and so we just continued to move. Did you, were you I, ever spotted, though? Did you know if you were ever spotted by anybody? So, um, not, not I don't, no, I don't think so. I mean, we, there were people that saw us, uh, but they, there was a kid that saw us. We were, we were kind of um, in this one spot, kind of hiding again. We were against this, uh, it was almost like a dam, and it went... Uh, the Euphrates River was on the other side. We didn't realize it at the time, but it went, there was this big hill and on the top was a road and people were walking up and down the road. And we were leaned up against the hill at the very bottom, probably, I don't know, maybe 15 feet. And I remember we were talking about what to do and discussing our plan. And um, we happened to look up and there was a kid on a bike just staring at us down the hill. And obviously we did not belong there. So he got on his bike and rode away. And so then, of course, we thought this was a pretty good spot, but then realized <laughs> we don't know if that guy's good or bad or who he's going to go talk to. And there was a flatbed truck driving around with a whole bunch of Iraqis shooting AKs into the air. But that's not entirely unusual. So right. we, we weren't sure if they were looking for us. Or not unusual, but probably a little unnerving, to say the least, at it, that yes. point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so then at that point, our sister ship said that the aircraft was mobbed. Um, and so we just kept on moving. And so we... Uh, we actually made it all the way to the, the Euphrates River, and uh, it sounds stupid now, but we didn't know where to go. We actually went into the river. Um, there were, like, really tall reeds, like, m well over our heads, like 12-foot tall reeds, 
And we went into there and when we came out on the other side, there was a big sandbar. And so we just set up on the sandbar um, and waited. And at that point, it took about an hour. It, again, this is one of those time things. I would have, by the time we got back to uh, base that, or to the airfield, I thought we'd been out there like five or six hours. And we actually were, from the time we were shot down at the time we hit the ground at our airfield, it was like 70 minutes. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it was crazy. Do, you, do so, you know how far you walked away? Yeah, I think it was about four kilometers. We went back later and mapped it all out. So that's what, about two and a half, three miles almost? Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so then they, uh, meanwhile, they, they, the, the infantry couldn't get to us. They were tied up. Um, our, our local, our ground forces that we worked usually with, they were the closest, but they couldn't get to us. And so our um, battalion rallied two Blackhawks who came out to get us. And so they, our, our um, other aircraft cleared the area, pulled security. The A-10 was still there. And then these two Blackhawks came in um, to pick us up, which was probably one of the greatest sounds I've ever heard in my life was when they were coming in. I mean, what's the relief feel? What is, is... Uh, it was pretty exciting. And when I heard the aircraft, I, I, I was pretty sure we would be okay. And so they came in and landed. I mean, again, there's a whole SOP for this. Um, and what was cool actually about this is because they couldn't get our ground forces um, in time to like, they couldn't come in a timely manner. Our, our, the aviation battalion had to rally guys to come get us. So these were all crew chiefs and guys that don't usually get off um, the airfield. And so they had like a really quick down and dirty mission prep. They all jumped in. There were probably, I don't know how many, air, how many soldiers there were. There was a lot of them, two aircraft. And what happens is the, the way this works is they land, all the soldiers jump out and they make a big circle around both helicopters. And then they begin to walk out away, making the circle bigger. Um, and so you're, as the pilots, you kind of crouch down and wait till they come get you. You never want to run up on the soldiers or run up on the aircraft because they don't know where you're coming from exactly. And so we just stayed crouched where we were. The circle got big enough. It hit us. They tap us on the head and that's a sign to get in. And then they radioed everyone else that we've been found. So we then are sprinting to the aircraft and they all close in behind us and everyone dove into the aircraft and, um, we took off and headed, took off like a bat out of hell and headed back to the airfield. It was, it was, it was as cool as it sounds. It was very exciting. When you land back at the airfield, who's the first person you see? Like, who's the first person you hug? What's going on? So my command sergeant major was the first person that was there and my first sergeant. Um, and our safety officer, I can't forget Rick Finland. <laughs> so my safety <laughs> officer and um, so command sergeant major and my first sergeant were all waiting for us. And they were worried about us. They didn't know if we were hurt. And we, I mean, we had bruising and some whiplash, but we weren't hurt. And so they immediately took us to the medical tent um, to get checked out. And then they handed us a sat, they handed us both a sat phone to call our families, which was awesome. So we immediately called and got a hold of our families, told them what happened. Was your husband That's deployed a, with you at the time? No, he was actually, he had, so my husband deployed before me to Afghanistan. Okay. So he was in Afghanistan when I went to, I, well, actually we played, we played tag at the house. I mean, he went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. He came, he went back to Afghanistan and then I went back to Iraq and he was home <laughs> at this point when I was during my second deployment. So, okay. um, but I called and he had just gotten home from uh, PT. So I got a hold of him. And, what, and did, uh, what did he say when you told him the story? It was, I mean, that's like a really strange conversation. Like, <laughs> hey, I got shot down today. I'm okay. Jeff and I are both fine. And I, I don't, that's a, 
Well, I mean, he's a pilot, so like nobody can sympathize yeah, better than than yeah. he could. So I, I mean, uh, but there was yeah. was there any concern, or did did you were you able to explain the details of what went on at that point in time, or what? No, I mean, I we kept the conversation pretty short. Okay, um, I just told him that we were fine, we were okay, everyone was, no one was hurt, and uh, gave him. I think I gave him a little. I don't know. I I can't really remember. It was a short conversation. He um. Again, though, I wasn't concerned about him because he understands what I do. We do the same thing. I mean, he was the least of my concerns. My parents were what I was really worried about because um, they wouldn't have understood it the right. way yeah, sure. my husband would have. Yeah. So, so since you weren't hurt, I assume that you were what's known as RTD, return to duty. and So they kept us grounded for three days. Okay. <laughs> three whole um, days, It's huh? kind of weird because, like, well, yeah, well they, they put us on some muscle relaxers. We were pretty sore. And uh, so they grounded us for three days, and that was like torture because, as, really, I mean, well, if you're not doing anything in Iraq, I mean, what do you do? The day lasts forever. You're just sitting there. I mean, it, the missions are still going. Everyone's still working, and you're just sitting on your cot. It was horrible. So finally, after three days, I looked at Jeff and said, should we go fly again? And he said, yeah. So we went and got signed back off that we could fly. Um, no reservations about getting back in a chopper, huh? Well, I wouldn't say no reservations. That first flight was terrifying, far more terrifying than that first flight back was far worse than the flight than the air, than the flight getting shot down. I mean, so, every time the wind hit the aircraft, I was sure we'd been hit by something. But once we got that first flight, and they gave us like an easy mission, like you know, fly to Ramadi and back, like something. They broke us in nicely, and then. Uh, but after that, um, I was just happy to be busy. Yeah, I mean, I I can imagine anybody's ever been in like a car accident, you know, one where that's that's violent, not a fender bender. Your, your first time back behind the wheel, like you are super nervous. So I can yeah. only imagine what you were feeling in the air. Um, you know, did, did, were you and Jeff equally as nervous? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we were pretending not to be, but I think we both were. <laughs> I think we were very relieved when we set the aircraft down after that first flight. And so, no other incidents for the rest of your deployment, as far as uh, with your helicopter. No, <clears throat> nope. And Just so, normal, the normal mission stuff. When you get home, uh, you know, is that the end for you? Uh, well, I mean, I decided during that deployment that I was ready to get out of the military, but it didn't have anything to do with getting shot down. It had more to do with I hadn't seen my husband in a year, and it was just time to do something else. When I got home from Iraq, he was on orders again for a third time to Afghanistan. Oh, God. And so that's when we said, we're done. We loved it, but it was we wanted to have a family, and it was just time to do something else. But no, I, I think, um, no, the weirdest thing for me with the shoot-down was that it, it, that was before people talked about PTSD, or that was before they had, you know, therapists and all that stuff. And so it kind of like, once we were back in the mission mix, no one ever talked about it again. And so... There was no, no one ever came and said, how are you guys doing? Should we talk about this? And, and so that to me was weirder than anything was that it was as if it had never happened. Did, do, did you have any kind of flashbacks of it after you left the military? No, I've, I've, I'm incredibly lucky. I haven't had any, um, any issues. Um, I haven't had any PTSD or flashbacks or anything like that. My, the worst thing I had was adjusting to civilian, the civilian world right. after because then what happened is we got home, I dropped my paperwork, February of 2004, four, or no, February of 2005, essentially, I got out. And I went from being Captain Brown, attack helicopter company commander, to 
Mrs. Brown unemployed. And that was that was far worse than anything else. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, just one more question as far as the crash is concerned. I mean, Mm -hmm. can you still hear it? And the reason why I asked that, I mean, my vehicle got hit with an IED when I was there and, and the crunch of the metal is something that I'll never forget. I know that sound. I'd hear it anywhere. And if I ever heard it again, I know I would instantly think of that. Is, is there anything like that that stays with you? Yes. Yeah, I, I remember exactly what it was like when we got hit. I remember exactly. like I was trying to lock my shoulder harness, and the um, it was everything was vibrating so so hard I couldn't even grab the the lever to do that. Um, but yeah, and I remember the bells and whistles and the way it sounded, and um, yeah, it's very clear. All right, so you decide to end your military career, but before it ends, you get interviewed for a book. Her name is Kristen Holmstead. She writes a book called Band of Sisters, American Women at War in Iraq, and you get, got a whole chapter dedicated to you and your experience, one that you just told me. What yes. was it like being part of that book, and, and how influential was it for you? I think probably the best thing for me was that I, I told the story uh, in great detail to Kirsten. So Kirsten didn't have any military experience. She didn't know anything about the military. Um, and for whatever reason, she got really interested in women's role in combat. And I think she actually was, um, I think the 82nd Airborne directed her to me to tell the story. So she came and spent a couple of days at our house and I just talked. So I think that was probably the greatest thing that came out of it was that I told the story enough times and explained it in so much detail so that she could understand it and write well about it, that it was almost like therapy, I would say. Right. And I remember when we were done, I was done talking about it, meaning I didn't need to talk about it anymore. I wanted to move on. It's not my identity. It was, um, it was, it was something that happened to me and now I was ready to do something else. So I feel like it was very therapeutic. And then, um, it was kind of funny because we, we talked probably that whole fall. So that was Oh four. And then, but the book didn't come out for like, I don't know, it didn't come out for a really long time after maybe two years. Mm-hmm. And so I'd kind of forgotten about it and, um, and it, maybe it wasn't that long, but I'd forgotten about it, moved on trying to figure out my life. I, we were having, you know, we had a kid, we had a baby in 2006. And so then when the book came out, um, it, I had forgotten about it actually. And then suddenly the book came out, I had to go buy a copy, which I think is funny. <laughs> <laughs> And so then to read the story that much, um, you know, a couple of years later was really interesting because I'd actually, I don't know if I'd blocked some of it, I'd forgotten pieces of it until I read it and thought, oh yeah, I forgot about that part. Or So it was kind of interesting. It's an interesting book. There well, are good chapters. There are not so good chapters, I would say. And coincidentally, you know, the debate has continued to rage on since your time about women in combat, women in the military and what oh, their yeah. role is. And we've had... We had another pilot on the Shannon Paulson, who was the first attack pilot in the 18th Airborne Corps. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, she also uh, ran into some challenges in her career with, you know, sexism and things of that nature and, and gave her viewpoints on women in combat and what their role is and where they are. I mean, how do you feel about all this now? So I think, um, was it like two years ago that there maybe a year, two years ago, they allowed women in combat? Yeah, they, all, all branches are now, all branches of I the like Army are I died laughing when I heard that because there have not been all-male units in 10 years. Right. There, so, yes, you can't be an infantry, you can't be an infantry branch woman, at, you know, when I was in Iraq. But there, But those units had plenty of women embedded with them, whether they were 
interpreters or intelligence officers or logistics or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there have been women in combat since the first Gulf War and a lot of women in combat the second time around. So it's kind of a funny thing to, I, I, and I got it. I mean, now they've opened up to MOS, uh, opened up MOS that weren't previously open to women. And that's what we're saying. But truthfully, to, to, it's, it's misleading to say women are allowed in combat now because women have been in combat for a really long time. Um, the discussion of should women be doing those roles? Um, I, I, I think if they can handle the physical demands of the job, they should be able to do it. But the argument that people make that, um, I, I've, and there's a lot of them, but one is uh, it's too hard for men to deal with women in combat, meaning it's like too emotionally devastating when women die or get hurt. I think that's bullshit. It's just as emotionally devastating when a male counterpart dies or gets hurt. Um, the idea that somehow you can hurt a woman worse than you can hurt a man, whether it's if you get captured, that type, I think that's also BS. I think if a woman can hold up to the, if she can do, she can pass the physical tests required to hold a job, she should be allowed to do that job. It doesn't ruin, you know, unit morale. Um, and I think we have tons of examples you can point to where there were healthy mixed gender units in the military serving in combat. Yeah, uh, General Becky Halstead, who was also a guest in the podcast, she was the first uh, female from West Point, who graduated from West Point, to achieve the rank of general. And she basically told us, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, if there if there aren't women in combat MOSs that you haven't found them, you're just not looking for the right women because they're out there. It's totally just a agree. question of, of finding them. Look, it's not for everybody, yep. just like the infantry isn't for every male in the military. But right. if, yep. you're, the, if you find the right female, she's going to succeed in everything yeah. that she does, it's just a question of finding that individual. And because yep. they are lesser in number, as far as the amount that are in the military, it's harder to find them. You have to look a little bit deeper. Yeah. And I, you know, when I was a company commander, I was the only woman in my unit. So it's, it's, um, those are not, again, I think if, if you have the right woman, it's going to work out just fine. Um, but yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with what she said. If a young woman wanted to join the military now in 2017, what would your message to her be? I would absolutely encourage her if she wanted to. And I would, uh, the number one thing that I always had to abide to by that the reason I was successful is because I had a really thick skin. You cannot take things personally. And the moment you start to take things personally is the moment that you get eaten alive, I think, by the entire process, by the organization. But um, if you can let things roll off your back, and drive on and do your job. I think that um, most people will succeed, uh, given the the circumstances they're in, or given the the. And that's, I think, what happened with me. I think that I got along well in my units because I didn't let things bother me. And 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 there are. That's not to say that you should accept everything that's thrown at you. I mean, if people are out of line, of course you shouldn't be accepting that. But a lot of banter um, in the military that I think sometimes people tend to, to take more personally than they should. And guys do it too. I mean, I've been accused of being really mean to my male soldiers as well. So it's not just women. It's everybody should um, stay focused on the task at hand and, and not let things get ever, not let jokes and things like that get um, too bothersome, I would say. You've been out of the military now, if I do my math right, as long as you were in it. What I know, you, isn't that crazy? What do you miss about the military or just being a pilot? 
I miss that I got up every day and knew what my job was because sometimes that's hard outside of the military to like really define what is my purpose um, and what is my job. And then I miss the, the feeling of, I was very uh, proud of being in the military. I was very satisfied with my mission. Um, so it was like a very fulfilling career and a very, very fulfilling job. So I missed that. Um, and then like everybody else, I missed the camaraderie and the, the people. Uh, I, I, I loved hanging out with the guys and I loved all the, uh, you know, even like the downtime in Iraq, it's like torture, but you sit around and you end up telling the funniest stories and sharing a lot about your families and their people from all these different backgrounds. And, um, I miss, I miss the people more than anything. I, I thought you were going to say the flying. Cause that's usually what most pilots tell you. <laughs> no, I don't actually. I mean, I missed it for a few years, but no, now I, and of course, you know how it is, the farther away it gets, you forget all the, all the stuff that sucked and you only remember the good stuff. But no, I don't, uh, the flying, yeah, a little bit, but not nearly as much as just the overall sense of accomplishment or sense of purpose and then the people. Any regrets? Uh, yeah, I have a few, but um, I, I was, I was, <laughs> yeah, I have a few regrets as a company commander. I made a few mistakes that I, I wish I hadn't made, but I, I also probably just at the time, it took a little more maturity and stepping away from it to realize that I probably could have been a better commander in some ways. Does that bother you now? Uh, I, 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 it doesn't bother me. I regret it. I mean, there's a few, I can, you know, a few things that stand out that I wish I hadn't done or wish I had done better. Um, but no, I, that doesn't keep me up at night. Well, listen, I'm glad you told your story one more time. Uh, if you'd like to read more about it in more in-depth detail, again, the book is called Band of Sisters, American Women at War in Iraq by Kristen Holmstead. Uh, you guys can get it anywhere. And Robin Brown, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.